Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Myself, Mark Pringle, and co-host Jasper Mirison Bowie in Barney Hoskins' absence. Hello, Mark. Hello, Jasper. And with us today, this is a huge pleasure, is the wonderful Michelle Kirsch. Welcome, Michelle. Oh, hello, hello, Jasper. <laughs> Mark and Jasper, hello. Uh, Michelle and I have a sort of a bit of history in that back in 1987, I was in a an incredibly unsuccessful British soul band called Hot House. And Michelle made one of our singles, Single of the Week. And then like a year later, he made another one of our singles, Single of the Week. It's very generous. <laughs> no, it was a really good band. It was a really I, good band. I actually band. do quite like them. I've yeah. listened to them from and it was time a, to time. And it was, it was expansive and it was great and it was cinematic and it was wonderful. It was all these things that music wasn't. Well, you're too, you're too kind. It also shows the power of the presses that neither single... They're both singles stiffed monumentally. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so well, well, let's get cracking and straight in. Michelle is our writer of the week this week and we've got three great pieces. I'm two of them, absolutely sensational. Interview with the replacements, interview with KRS-One and a live review of sort of a subset of the New York Dolls, Sil Sylvain and Jerry Nolan live in New I, York. I know. I, can, I have to say, I had to realize, like, I can't even remember that gig. <laughs> but there were so many gigs like that with like various, still barely alive members of the New York Dolls doing what we call rent gigs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gigs, I mean, we got a um, marvelous Su- Susan Shapiro who wrote for the Village Voice. Yeah, yeah. We got a review she posted. We posted. She's one of our writers of, of the sort of, in theory, the Heartbreakers' last show in in, in New York. In fact, of course, yeah. they did various versions of afterwards. And she just says. It's the most awful thing she ever saw. Basically, he's dead. He's on stage and he's dead. Yeah, you know? pretty much. Yeah. There's, there's quite and a lot of that. sort of like, like propped up. I've just recently, there's a really good, I've recently read back to back the Jerry Nolan book. Yeah. It was brilliant. Kurt Weiss, uh-huh. a brilliant drummer himself, in the, um, oh, I can't, not the Stray Cats, the other one, the Rock Cats. Right. Yeah. And then the Sil Sylvain one, which was absolutely brilliant because you could really hear his voice going like, we <laughs> was the best looking bands. Like, like we were gorgeous. And I was particularly gorgeous because I was Egyptian, but I was Jewish and I had it all going on. You could really hear that New York voice throughout. So whoever did the thing really transcribed Fan- it really well. Fantastic. I, I, Went to see some terrible blues band playing upstairs at Ronnie's, and I think about sort of 1977, I think. And a very smacked out Joan Lowland sat in and suddenly came alive and played brilliantly because he was a really good drummer. He could do it. He and I ended, it. Yeah. I ended up in a basement with him and Patty Paladin and Judy Nylon. Um, of Snatch, the marvellous band Snatch. That, that night, I thought Pat Paladin was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen on earth. She looked like Johnny's sister. She looked <laughs> like, you know, like but Italian-y cheekbone and black hair and the whole much, thing. Much, much prettier. Yeah, but, but yeah. Anyway, so years later, Barney and I went and visited Patty Paladin to talk about her. She has some fairly substantial archive of stuff she's collected. She remembered everything about that night. Except me. <laughs> there was a Mark Pringle shape. So disappointing. So di- it just made me roar with laughter. I mean, what can you do? But cry inside. But, but yeah, <laughs> weep, weep inside. She's still in London, isn't she? She is. She, 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 she yeah. is. And she still looks astonishing. I mean, she's very well preserved. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, well, yeah, let's look at a couple of these pieces. The replacements. You, you... Ah, yeah, the replacements. Now, see, this is the thing. This was the whole thing about the enemy. I I loved the replacements. I said, oh, let me do the replacements. I love them. I love everything they've ever done. And yet, somehow, in their biography, I come out as the bitch. Like, <laughs> not, like, I, even when I was trying to be nice, I was nasty. I was like, I really like these guys, and it's going to be a great write-up, and it's going to be real fangirl kind of stuff. And then, you know, Melody Maker guy, like, you're so great. Why are you so great? You're so fantastic. And I was like, oh, Paul Westerberg is taking a piss on the roof of WEA. And he goes, oh, please don't put that in the article. And I thought, oh, okay, I won't. But I did. It was brilliant. You know, he's like, you know, metaphorically, he's taking the piss on his, you know, record company. They struck me as being a difficult interview, but they, they were sort of fairly uncooperative. They were uncooperative and they were also horrendously or wonderfully drunk depending on how you look at it pretty much the whole time <laughs> and at one point we went to the we went to the mean fiddler and then paul came and he goes i have a really big secret to tell you you can't tell anybody it's i'm a journalist <laughs> <laughs> but i'll try and he went i said it, and we were talking about bob stinson who wasn't there at right. the time i said i said i said why is bob not in the band anymore he goes 
because he's an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I think I put. I think between putting that in, that thing he said, please don't tell anybody. You didn't never say that to a journalist. I know, I know. It's a red rag to a bull, isn't it? Stupid thing to say. And also saying like he pissed on them, which wasn't saying he was doing a bad thing. I thought was kind of kind of cool. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, exactly. They would like him, you know. Like he pissed on the roof, but because that because of that, even though I said the live gig was great, they were so great, it was so chaotic. And it was so, and everybody, everybody in America, they, they were the one band everybody in America yeah. agree on. Yeah. Everybody loved yeah. them. Yeah. They yeah. were yeah. so chaotic. And so. It, I never saw them at that time. It, it, weirdly, it was actually uh, Sean O'Hagan from the High Alarmers, um, Micro Disney, who kind of turned me on to them. Actually, around the time they were just ending, uh, uh, all shook down and so on and so forth. Uh, I made the really bad mistake of going to see them when they played the Roundhouse about three years ago. I've got a general rule, never see bands that you liked then now because it's invariably disappointing. Yep, yep, and yep. they were ghastly. I'm yeah, sorry, they were ghastly. Yeah, the yeah. audience loved them. And you sat, you're in an audience full of people just drooling. And yep, you're saying, yep. but look, this is... Also, they've been on... All the reasons why they broke up in the first place had become apparent to the band in the process of this tour. And the body language on stage was poisonous oh, between yeah. Tommy and... Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. Oh, it wasn't good. Anyway... Um, that's it's a great piece. KRS-One. I love this piece. It's so oh. good. It's just so funny and so yeah, it really recaptures, I think, what what they were trying to do, but in a very natural way. It was it was great at the time because I was doing. I, I went over there and I did I did KRS-One. I also did JVC Force at the same time. Right. Who were like absolute kids. They were about sixteen, and yeah. I went up there and it was the same record company, a really small subsidiary of something. I can't even remember what it was, but the guy subsidized the record label by making porno films. <laughs> and I found on this, uh, and so I was sitting there, you know, like all sort of like not laid out because I was really horrendous. But I was there at KRS One at the record company, and kind of had my hand on the desk. And he goes, "You don't want to put your hand right there." And I said, "Why not?" And he goes, "You don't want to know what happened on that desk." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, he's like, "We're talking major porn and things like." That. I said, "Oh, okay, that that's fine. Well, you know, everybody's got to make a living. You know, <laughs> trying to be really nice." But he had great stories, and he was very he was. To my mind, he was kind of like the Martin Luther King to yeah. public enemies, you know, more radicalized, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, version. And he was always about his whole message at the time was because people were getting killed on the dance yeah. floor. Yeah. You oh, know, well, his, 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 was, his DJ had been killed just months before you. Yeah, did, Scott LaRock. That's yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, he still he still really felt for Scott. You could see when he talked about Scott, he welled up. But he had like he had no filter. He told me everything, and he told me like when he went to he had a job as a as a driver as driving a bread truck somewhere and he yeah. was going upstate New York and he was so excited telling the story and he goes yeah and I went upstate New York and then suddenly I saw this field and I thought it was like oh it's just one of those fields upstate full of potatoes or corn or something I looked at it and it was like it was pot <laughs> <laughs> so I stopped the van and I took out like I just got all these black bin bags and I filled up everything with you know everything with pot and he drove the bread van back down filled with pot you know with the intention of selling it <laughs> he got stopped by the police and he goes, I was, he didn't swear. He went, I was pretty scared, you know. <laughs> and the, all they did was stop him for speeding. They didn't look in the back of the I, I, I found, I was cycling, I was cycling holiday in France in 1978, and I came across this field of weed, and I thought, well, he'd been really disappointed because they grow it for hemp, and it's the wrong strain. It has no oh. effect. So I, you know, I hold these massive. It looked like a reggae album cover, right. you know, <laughs> from the Virgin Frontline series, you know. Uh, and so, you know, we grabbed some and it dried and we smoked it. Nothing happened whatsoever. <laughs> so I'm, fr- I'm afraid Chris, as I believe his, his people call him, would have been bitterly disappointed if it. <laughs> but you turn uh, into a choir rug. It's interesting because he's something quite not school teacherish, but you ask him a question and he feels he has to explain you know he's he's very serious about what what he's doing and why he's doing it he, you know he didn't take exactly umbrage at some of your questions but like you know why are you holding the gun on the sleeve and he says well that's a malcolm x right right right, right. Uh, and so you, you challenge him which is great you you, you know you, you're not just like some people would say you know it's krs1 Mm. Worship this man. You know, you, you're quite tough in your questioning, and he seems to respond very well to that. He was because he kind of wanted to play it on both, you know, both sides. He kind of wanted to retain the kind of gangster image because that's what drew the kids yeah, in yeah. from the street, you know. And then, you know, songs like, you know, 
uh, that riff, wa da da dang, wa da man man, it's like a great song. Yeah, it's no, a I, I, riff, but it's but you feel really uncomfortable saying it. My my nine millimeter goes ba ba bang. Yeah. And I was playing for my son the other day. I said it's great track. He goes, what? But you know what that is? Nine millimeter. I said, yeah, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm from New York. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but he he wanted he wanted the, the street cred of that, and then but he also wanted to say, but he felt that it was wrong. For particularly, it was this was my first piece ever for like a serious paper, The Independent. I wrote about black on black violence. It was a really bad problem at the time. Yeah, and I got obsessed with it. In those days, if we wanted to research a piece, you got like all the microfiches and mm-hmm. all, and read all the clippings and stuff like that. And it was just there were there was loads and loads of it about. It was yeah. like trying to find out the reasons for yeah. it. I mean, I I, I, I was mm-hmm. I've always been something of a fan of him and Billy Down production stuff generally. Not necessarily sonically. I thought, you know, compared to let's say Public Enemy, which is the best noise. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean Public Enemy is for me is a bit like Jimi Hendrix and I hated it at first. For about six months I walked around just hating Public Enemy. Because it sounded like a police raid going on, and then suddenly, yeah, yeah, like the light bulb went off, and it's, yeah, you know, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is great. Anyway, it's a fantastic piece. Well, one of the things I found really interesting, just on, on what you were just talking about, is this idea that Iron Maiden fans kill themselves and rap fans kill each other. Right, it gets to the heart of that discomfort in the U.S. You know, Iron Maiden fans, okay, maybe devil worship and all this stuff, but they keep it to themselves, and then. With rap, there's a kind of sense of they're attacking middle class comfort in some way, and so it becomes a much more controversial. I mean, you make the point that actually Iron Maiden were under attack, you know, in in the media for the devil worship stuff and so on and so forth. So he was more or less making your point, and actually you were pointing out, I think, some truth that actually that was a time when, and it happened later on with Marilyn Manson and so on and so forth, is is that certain areas of metal have always come under attack by the moral guardians of America. Yeah, I think that's true, although I think that the the kind of attack is a different Mm. one, where, like, you get umbrage is taken at this issue, but it's you're not imprisoning Iron Maiden fans. Well, well, that that is true, and also that that black music has always been victim of moral panics. We're currently having it with drill in this country. Have you seen this thing about the two drill... um, Absolutely. ...arrested and told not to make music? And and can't go into certain postcodes in London. London. It's insane. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the other thing you've got to remember is, is this is 87, which was the, really the beginning of the crack wars in, in yeah, New York. Yeah, and, and also there was this whole notion, and it was like a, it, was, it was a very hard thing to, to, to pin down, of disrespect, of dissing. Yeah. So I said, so I really, really hated it, like when all like the, the white English guys started saying, he dissed me, man. It's like, it didn't sound right. It just, it's like, <laughs> well, it never it does, does it? Me. <laughs> he did, you know, he dissed me. But like, dis, like, it was a really hard concept for yeah. me to grasp because it could be, it could be the, a very slight look, a wrong look, yeah. or glancing, and, and that would be you dissing me. You know, what's happening in London now, particularly with sort of knife crime, is very much around the same things. I mean, you've got two of the similar sort of elements. You've got drugs and gangs, but you've also just got this notion of respect. Yeah. It's an entirely spurious notion of respect. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And now, of course, it's heightened by social media and so on and so forth. I mean, thank God in 1987 they didn't have Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> it could have been far worse. What da da dang, what da 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 dang. Hey, listen to my nine millimeter go bang. Moving on, let's talk about you just for, before we move on to other stuff on the site. Uh, tell us about how you got into writing about anything. Oh, okay. Well, how I got into writing about anything. Where are you from? Where, where okay. were you born? I was I was born in Queens to a mother from Liverpool. So I went back and forth and back and forth. My dad worked for what was then called BOAC. Absolutely. So we got free free flights. So British we were, Overseas Airways Corporation. Or they used to say, better on a camel. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was so slow. You could get there fast. But, but the magnificent BOAC terminal still there in Pimlico it Road. Indeed, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, it is indeed. Anyway. It's beautiful. I've, I've got all my weird little fangirl BOAC stuff. But anyway, so I was back and forth and back and forth. I always liked England better, and I always knew that when I grew up, I would live here eventually. Right. But when I was living there, I was really into this newspaper, which kind of like the cooler version of the Village Voice called the Soho Weekly News. Yep. I started reading it when I was about sixteen, and we couldn't get. I was I was living in Queens near the airport, so we couldn't get it there. So I went into Soho to complain to the people that could you please circulate it in Queens, so I wouldn't have to come into Manhattan to buy it. And the guy who saw the desk and he goes, he goes, who are you? And I said, I'm here. And he goes, oh, you must be the new intern. Just go back to the back office. And I thought. 
I'm just going to do it. <laughs> it was just like a, a mistaken identity thing. And I said, let's just see what happens. So I went back to the circulation department and I saw this guy, lovely fuzzy, he's dead now, sucking on this tank, nitrous oxide. And I thought, I'm going to, this is the place I want to work. This is the thing I want to do Fantastic. for a job. It was so brilliant. Good. And then I gravitated toward the music desk because they always had great music playing. This was like, 78, 79, so every, all the punk thing was going yeah, on. Yeah. Everything was very... And all the music writers were really funny and really cool. There was this great guy, Alan Platt. He was hilarious. He, did, he had the, one of the best opening lines ever, which I nicked in various guises. <laughs> it was about... Remember the plasmatics? Oh, yes. Yeah, and she used to saw the thing. Wendy O. Williams. Wendy O. Williams. And he said, whatever the respectable face of punk music is, Wendy O. Williams has just sat on it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, that's so brilliant. And I I nicked that in various guises. Fantastic. Yeah. So I I, I thought, this is is the fun bit of the office. The news bit was quite worthy. Yeah, yeah, sure. But but the art bit was quite cool as well because it was around the time of Jean-Michel Basquiat. Oh, yeah. Who who I met because he came into the office office and he bought he wanted to meet he wanted to fix this one he was doing samo which stood for same old shit and he wrote it it over everywhere and he was he was so talented and so beautiful and he was so screwed by andy warhol well i mean i was very skeptical at first purely because of how he was being hyped up by various people yeah but and I suddenly realised actually he's a really good painter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just simply a really yeah. fantastic, really good painter. In Rome, a year before last, the show which eventually came to London, they had the, the, the quite big basket show, and I just walked around thinking, this man just knows how to use this material. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just on that sort of really classic yeah. artist sort of way. And he had something to say. Which yeah, is, uh, I mean, he had yeah. a lot to say. So when did you leave New York? So I left New York when I was about 24. What year was it? Let me see. It would have been 84, 85. So you must have been there right through the whole No Wave sort of period. Were you, yeah, were you, were yeah, you into that I was, stuff? I was really into that stuff because Soho News was into that stuff. So yeah. all the, um, it was... It was Z Records, yeah, as we yeah, called yeah, them then. Yeah, yeah. And all. I loved the contortions. Yes. I loved it. We've had this conversation yeah. before. <laughs> I know you're not a fan. Because no, no, I, I, just, um, I, I just saw they played with one of the worst shows I've ever seen in London. You know. uh, because basically half the band had got turned away at the airport. Oh, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, they, and, and the members of Central Line, Brit funk band Central Line, had to sort of provide the sort of the, the rhythm section. And it was. And James Chance was. You know, just having a bad night. But I no, I I because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went one time. We all got we all all at Soho Weekly News, and we were like mud clubby downtowny yeah. people. And we all got invited to Studio Fifty Four just to see how what would happen <laughs> if you threw in a bunch of downtowners into the disco scene with the big Coke spoon and all that stuff. And so we all went, and I was way too young. I could I and I looked really young, yeah. so I couldn't get into any of those places. But if I went in with a throng of Soho News right. people, I got in. So we went in there all james chance did and he would ju- he just looked like a frightened mouse yeah. a frightened rabbit and you know in studio 54 and he was with anya phillips yeah. at the time and anybody who who would she was beautiful anybody who would try to dance with her he would just leap on them like a giant cockroach and just try and <laughs> beat them up you know don't you don't you dance with my girl i mean know? i love so much that stuff i'm a big lydia lunch fan i think for, you she's know, great um, yeah. who is it who did um, too many freaks Bush Tetris. Bush Tetris. I really love the Bush Tetris. I mean, I, I mean, Too Many Freaks is just such a yeah, such a great tune. Yeah. Uh, and creeps. I, too Many Creeps. I didn't love post-punk in this country. It was very dour. I mean, I'm going to like the Atlam Hall and seeing mm-hmm. the raincoats and scritty Politi and everyone had a cold and, you know, it, was, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it felt like permanent winter. And so that sort of stuff, yeah. even though it was yeah. quite dark, it was just... Lively and it was funky, and I adored Kid Creole and Coconuts and so on. So, so yeah, that was. So you were there at a really great, great time. I was there at a really great time, but I was just slightly too young to really appreciate it. So I would have to sneak in. I must point out when I met you in 1987, you was about 12 then. I know. So. <laughs> I've caught up with myself now. Now you merely look 35. <laughs> <laughs> But I came over to England. When I came over to England, I was friends with this mad American family called the Landersmans, and who yeah. were very arty and creative. And their son, Cosmo, yeah, yeah. who was my mate, was married then to Julie Birchall. Right. So she sort of made the intro to ah. the enemy for me, and I started writing. And I think, I think my first actual interview with them was with the Dream Syndicate. 
and I didn't have any equipment. I was really poor. I was living in a bed set for about 20 quid, quid a week. And, I, and my neighbor in the bed set let me one of those great big ghetto blasters to record the interview on. And I went there and they had a new record out. But all I wanted to talk about Days and Wine and Roses, which was the one yeah. I was completely obsessed with. I went there and the machine wasn't working and it was this big ghetto blaster. And I just kept like, what did you mean about that song? Were you like in love? And then she left you. <laughs> and then he said to me, Steve, when he goes, you've never done this before. <laughs> <laughs> like he, played, you know, he, he, it was so clear. It was so, it was just so, oh my God. I think, you know, like that sort of teenage girl obsession with yeah, the yeah, lyrics. Yeah. Girls, I found women journalists in particular really poured over the lyrics yeah. the way that we did even in when they included the lyrics mm. in record sleeves and stuff. I'm, 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 he understands yeah, yeah, yeah. me. I'm a typical bloke. I can't don't, I'm not sure on a single lyric of a single song all the way through. <laughs> and that includes my own songs, yeah. you know, so it's... It, you know, I mean, it's, it, there, there is some divide there, isn't oh, there? I do think that whenever people try and get academic about music, they, they sort of leap to... Particularly rock critics yeah. will leap to the lyrics as a kind of, as a, as a kind of yeah. way of trying to legitimise... Yes. Rather than talking about the, the, the wishy-washy music bit of it, talk about the lyrics. Or even the tough music bit of it. I mean, Matt Snow, who's a dear friend, wrote this thing about Jimi Hendrix for, I think, Uncut or something, a few months back. And he starts talking about Jimi Hendrix's lyrics. Now, H Hendrix wasn't a bad lyricist, but what's the first thing you listen to about with Jimi Hendrix? It ain't the words. No, it's not the you, words. You, you know, no. and, and it's a kind of almost a complete misunderstanding of who... who Hendrix was as an artist, my favourite, by the way, but that's another conversation. But can I just paint a little picture of what the NME was like in yes, the mid-80s? Yes, I yes. mean, it was at the offices. It was my, so there were, first of all, there weren't that many women there. Barbara Ellen came in a little yep. bit later, and she she was great, and yep. she added, like, this glamour, and she was kind of goth, but not really goth. <laughs> Helen Mead was the live editor. She was yep. rave queen. Yep. She was just, you know, out raving every night. Was and then, Cynthia Rose there at the time? Cynthia Rose was already at City Limits, right. so she, she had left. But it was... At you had your two camps. You had people who wanted, you know, Schooly D on the cover yeah. every week, and then you had the Smiths people, Never the Twain with Me. And then we, we all went to editorial meetings, and there were two <laughs> there were two agrophobics of which I was one, and Deli Fideli was the oh, other yeah. one. And we used to we used to fight for space at the editorial meetings by the door so we could escape quickly, you know, when everything <laughs> kicked off. And he went so far as to 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 write his articles in in the loose. Because he was so agoraphobic, he would just take a typewriter <laughs> and sit. Because he just, he poor Deli, he couldn't really do people, which is a very weird thing for a for journalist. journalist. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were hot desking before it was even called hot desking. Yeah. So Don Watson, who was staff, when he would go out on his lunch, I would sit in his desk, and he was going out with the writer, the experimental writer Kathy Acker. At was the time. he? He was. So I was sitting at Don's desk, and she called. And she went. Hi. I said, hi. She goes, she goes, is Don there? And I said, no, I, but can I take a message? And he goes, tell him I'm bleeding. <laughs> and I said, okay, tell him you're bleeding. I'm writing it down. I said, um, from which orifice? <laughs> and she said, he'll know. <laughs> and then poor Kathy, she died yeah. and stuff. And then <laughs> this message she, she, she had a thing about enemy journalists because she had a relationship with Charlie Murray didn't she for a bit she was she got around she got around <laughs> um Fantastic. And you went, did you go to City Limits or was it time Yeah, out? then yeah. we, then we, I went over to City Limits and I was do, I was doing the folk listings of which I knew absolutely nothing. So folk I just music? Used to, <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just used to make stuff up and we used to get, <laughs> the bands used to get really, really annoyed at it. Peggy Seeger once called me up and gave me a right bollocking. I was like, Peggy Seeger? <laughs> and then she goes, every week you say, call for prices. Like, we're, it's $2.50. When are you going to learn that? I said, well, you've got to send it in. We had this other band called Dingle Spike. <laughs> and then ring in and he goes, okay, I'd like to give you two weeks' worth of listings and run through every... We're playing the dog and duck, you know. <laughs> and, and it was just... But it, we, we had a lot of fun. Lucy O'Brien yeah. was there. Andy Darling was there. It was a really was fun great. outfit. We got no work done whatsoever. Yeah, Lucy O'Brien's real favourite of ours. She, she's a wonderful She's woman. absolutely brilliant. Yeah, she's yeah. absolutely encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of not just women in pop, which became her thing, but yes. all pop music. She wrote a great book. Now, so what happened to you after that? So then I, then I got into more general journalism. Yeah, yeah. I went to City Limits and I started writing about... Cynthia Rose was, was mm -hmm. the editor then and, she's, and it, this was when AIDS was coming about, yeah. really big. So she asked me to do a piece about alternative 
cures to AIDS. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was there for a while. I was doing folk music for a while. And then I kind of got more into mainstream thing and not really writing about, yeah. about I guess, what, what Private I would call Mummy for Old Rope, you know, writing about health, family, relationships. Mm-hmm. Really, really big on cures for stress and anxiety, which I would write while necking Valium and drinking vodka, <laughs> which is, you know, just like not... <laughs> You know, you know, do do as I write, not yeah. as I actually do. So, at what point did you more or less stop writing? I stopped writing. Oh, I, I mean, I probably around two thousand and ten. Yeah. Journalism, yeah, it was going really well. I was getting, I was doing a lot of features for the Times, kind of general staff, yeah. kind of when they had the. Well, I think they still do those mid sections. Yeah, know, the feature bit T two, and they thought I was a bee's knees. There were going to be loads of work. And then my own problems and raising kids and various things got in the way. And, and then the whole landscape of freelancing was changing. Right. And I sort of went away for a while when I came back and I'm like, I'm back. I'm like, well, we're not, you know, we, yeah. don't, we have no work for you. Yeah. It was all done in-house. Which brings us on to your book, which is coming out, I believe, almost exactly a month from now. Yeah, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, March 7th. Yeah? yeah. Um, tell us about the book. So the book is called Clean, and it's about when... So when all this went tits up, it all went horribly wrong with the writing and with life in general, because I was... I, I did have... I wasn't joking about the agoraphobia. It's like a true story. Mm-hmm. Like, I was uh, actually... I have to tell you this. I was, a, I was hired as a tour manager for Michelle Shock. And uh, she said, like, because we got on, we did an interview, mm. and we crossed the line, we got on really well. And she goes, will you be my tour manager? I said, what does it involve? She goes, oh, traveling all over the U.S., like in planes and buses and everything. I went, yeah, sure. And I thought, fuck, I'm agoraphobic. How am I going to do it? Like, I don't even like to leave my bed sick. <laughs> But I did it, you know, with the help of various prescription drugs, which then became a problem in itself. Right. But how's that agoraphobic tour manager? <laughs> I always got her to the gigs, and she fired me in every other state. We were traveling with Billy Bragg at the time, so it was Michelle Shock. And he called me Michelle Sacked because I was always getting fired. And <laughs> <laughs> she'd hire me again. <laughs> but I digress. I mean, there's actually bloody hell I've just blown it I've mentioned a folk singer in the book I don't name her because I don't want to get sued (laughs) do you want us to cut that out no (laughs) I mean I don't know I don't know how much she's on anybody's radar anymore really but anyway so the book the book is kind of a story about how um I had this kind of trauma early in life I don't think I really really bad trauma my my father was killed Uh. in a train crash and we were all put on drugs because we couldn't cope my mother I think was on like the really quite heavy duty stuff like barbiturates because that's what they had at the time and as I as I was coming up and getting more anxiety and panic and various things I think they now they've got a name for this thing it's called something grief disorder everything is disorder like when you just can't get over the death of somebody you just go way down that hole and we all kind of did our whole family did but I still managed to do life somehow I managed you know forge this career I was a teacher and I was a writer and I did all these things I moved to England I had a husband and two kids but there was always a Valium mm-hmm. in the background. And when I came to England and everybody drank like fish, I thought, I've arrived. This is like <laughs> heaven. This is because people didn't really drink that much in but America. America. Yeah, it wasn't. It was more of a drug uh-huh. culture prescription in particular. And it was legitimized because if a doctor gave it to you, it meant like you had a, something wrong with you. Right. And therefore, it was okay. Yeah, which, but, which leads directly onto the opioid crisis of the last of course, sort of 50 yeah, years. It's precisely yeah. that. Yeah. So there was that side, and then you know it all it all came to a horrible, disgusting halt around around about 2010 when I think it was actually Helen Mead who had also retrained as a kind of alternative healer, and she um, she said you need to go to like a place like rehab or something because you're not well. And I was, and I did that, and that kind of saved my life. That was sort of toward the end of. 2011 Mm -hmm. but what I did some things that people don't do like I was a mum my kids were teenagers and I left my family and I'm just popping up for some milk I'll be back but I left for about 18 months and mums don't do that kind of thing Uh, no you know it's like it's bad it's wrong just looking quite shocked over there no no, it's like it's it's a bad thing to do and you know the the notion was like I'll just I'll do the train spawning thing I'll clean myself out I'll get cold turkey but 
once I was living alone, I thought, hey, I've got no reason to. I live alone now. You know, it's like I can do what I want. Yeah, yeah. And then um, when I came out of rehab, I was like, I suddenly had to do life and navigate life, not on drugs, which was really scary. I didn't know how to do the simplest conversations. I would strike up conversations with strangers just to feel it, see what it felt like. And I didn't want to do people anymore. So I became a cleaner. And I was a cleaner for about two years. And when people started talking to me and saying, like, why why are you a cleaner? You don't you don't kind of look like a cleaner. You don't act like a cleaner. <laughs> to him, a cleaner was from Eastern yes. Europe and charged, like, under what, you know, the, the going rate was and just spoke, the, you know, bare minimum English. And, like, I foxed them. They couldn't work out yeah. why I was doing it. And I learned loads about people through cleaning their stuff. In fact, I probably learned more about people by cleaning their houses there's, than I ever did there from was journalism. A, there was a book of the week on Radio 4 recently, yeah. which is... Uh, made. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. And she says exactly that, that she, it's a curiously intimate sort of profession in terms of the people you're cleaning for. You discover everything about their lives in sort of increments of just by investigating, by, by cleaning their houses. It's, it, it, it all becomes, it, their, their lives reveal themselves in, in, in a curious kind of way. I did. I said, there was this one woman, one of, my, one of my earlier gigs, and she had like a whole shelf loads of books, of every book written ever about why, why it's okay to not have children and to, you know, it's, you know, you don't have to breed, you don't have to have kids and whatever. And I thought... She really wants kids, <laughs> this woman. She's just trying to, like, read herself yeah. out of it. And it made me a bit sad, you know. So that's the book, Yeah, yeah, so it's like, it's, it's sort of like there's a central narrative of, you know, me sort of growing up in between England and New York and going back and forth and this kind of kind of very insidious drug addiction happening and it wasn't anything really like kind of out there and proper kind of drugs cool, proper drugs <laughs> you know like heroin or whatever it was just like mother's little helpers yeah yeah but when i went to rehab all the people on heroin said oh there's a way that's way harder to come off than interesting. heroin interesting it takes a lot longer yeah. anyway so when did you start writing this I, I, I did like kind of a well I started writing I was sort of like I love Facebook because I started like writing yeah. about cleaning gigs yes, and like I, all these characters I, and I did that I started seeing some of your posts yeah. indeed and then um, the independent said why don't you just do a whole article about the people you clean for I said oh well, well they'll know I'll get in trouble and they said, oh, just do it anyway. So I did, you know. <laughs> and then every, uh, so the piece came out in the Independent and it went viral. Every, everybody's house that I went to clean that week, they had the, they had the Independent there <laughs> on the table like, we've seen this. <laughs> we know you've written about us. The woman with who thought it was witty to have a lamp who's, whose light flick was a was a penis. <laughs> That's not funny. That's just sad. And I fucking wrote it. You know? And I had to go clean her house next week. What did she say? She was pretty diplomatic about it, but she got rid of the lap because it was him next week. That's fantastic. You've actually um, contributed positive change to her life. Right? Beyond just I just bet that's not funny. Penis lamp, no. no. Well, listen, I can't wait to read it. Very much looking And congratulations. Oh, and, thank you uh, very and, much. And so we're all going to look forward to that. And, and uh, I believe we're going to have a... Link on the homepage of the site to pre-order on Amazon. So, that would be brilliant, so yeah. I advise you all to get it. There's only one thing I do. Can I tell you the other thing I do now? My life has completely changed. You cook, don't you? I cook and I work I work specifically with people who've had brain injury, traumatic oh. brain injury. So I'm like, life just completely gone the other way. So from just, you know, pushing hoovers around, I'm, mm. I'm dealing with people who've, you know, had really severe brain injuries all the time. And I would like to say, like... Wow, what a difference that is to doing rock journalism, but it kind of isn't. <laughs> Actually, it was like really, it's it really cruel, but it was really good training. Fantastic, you know? fantastic. Because you, you never know what somebody with yeah. brain injury is going to say or how they're going to behave. And it's made me a lot less snotty and snobbish and music criticism me about music because they're just anything that triggers a memory is happy yeah. for them. So I, I've got this one Lithuanian guy at the moment. And he's a believer. He's a Lithuanian believer. <laughs> and I, and Joe, so we're all making lunch together. And like, I, he's, he's kind of like, I help, I help. What can I do to help? 
And then I know when I put on Justin Bieber's Despacito, he goes absolutely apeshit. He gets so happy. He's crying and knows all the way, Despacito. So we've, that beca- that's become our little lunchtime ritual. We dance to Justin Bieber's Despacito. And I thought, fuck, if the 25-year-old could see me now, you know, <laughs> dancing wildly to Justin Bieber, I'd be horrified. Fantastic. Which leads us neatly on to our other free feature, which is Avril Lavigne. <laughs> or Bovril Latrine. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, Simon uh, Price decides to call yeah. her. In, in, now, when, when, how, when was that piece done? Uh, was that's, that's 2003. Um, yeah. And we got three pieces. That Simon Price, a very, very amusing review yeah. of her Brixton Academy show. Spoiler uh, alert, he doesn't like it. Very <laughs> <much>. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. I mean, Simon Price is a terrific writer. He's, he's immensely funny. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are certain writers who I can read... Writing about anything. I mean, music I have no interest in. Stephen Wells is one. Yeah. Neil Kulkarni was another one, a more recent one. Where it, just just the joy of reading their stuff because they're just plain funny and they write brilliantly. And he's one of them. We also got Mark Weingarten, the LA Times, having a chat on the phone with her from Kansas City, and Pat Blasil, oh Blasil, uh, reviewing her debut album for Rolling Stone in two thousand and two. What do you make of Avril Lavigne, or don't you? I don't, she was, I mean, my, my daughter was into her and I said, is she a good thing? You know, you really, she's, and she, I said, you understand this. I felt like I had to talk her, talk her down mm-hmm. <laughs> for like, she's not really a skater, punk rocker girl. She's like a little, you know, kind of posh mall girl. And this is all like yeah. a concocted image. My daughter was like, what does it matter? It's, yeah. it's engaging pop and whatever. And I've been trying to. She's got really varied tastes, and my daughter really likes grime and stuff like that, but she also likes people like Ariana Grande. Mm-hmm. And I said, you talk, talk me how, down how, through this. How, like, how old is your daughter? She's 24. Right. I said, like, talk me through this. So I think, on the one hand, like, yeah, the same, it was a very funny piece, and it really amuses me. And, yeah, it's completely manufactured, mm-hmm. and it's completely, you know, they, you know, you could see the record company suits thinking, like, okay, she's got to be a bit punky, but she's kind of got to appeal to the mall girls, yeah. and she's got to be kind of, like, manic pixie girl, and, like, hey, let, let's let's go to the mall, and, like, the worst, what's the really baddest thing we could do? In one video, I think she she nicks some um, roll-on antiperspirant and does her arms under it, I say, like... To her, that's being like a really bad girl, <laughs> nicking deodorant. You know, like it, when most most must be saying, "Thank God she's nicking deodorant." <laughs> but she shaves. Well, but I mean, that, that was the point, right? It was it, she appealed to the mothers of the of the exactly of the, of the people who yeah. were yeah. supposed to. Fantastic. I think Barney was quite keen that I should somehow confess that that I was a sort of skater boy at the time of Avril Lavigne. How are we spelling boy? B-O-I, That's I think. what I thought. Let's get this straight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear, for the record. No, but the sad the thing is, I mean... I think and how I mean, do you spell skater? S-K-H-E-R. <laughs> I knew that. Um, but the, the sad truth is that, I, I mean, I, I was aware of her music and I probably listened to, mm-hmm. to it kind of going along when people would put it on, but it wasn't... Not really my thing. I have to have to disappoint you, Barney. I'm sorry. No. Um, no, but I was hoping we could get a skateboard for our photo shoot, but utterly failed to procure a skateboard. Utterly failed to. Yes, that that that. What do, what do you think about her? I have no feelings one way or the other about her. My niece, who had a sort of punkette band when she was at school, actually included Avril in one of her lyrics, a sort of diss of Avril right, right. I'm not even sure I've consciously heard a single song. She's made. Oh, maybe unconscious. <laughs> well, a lot of things have happened to me unconsciously, which, which, which we won't go into here. But, you know, but skater boy, everybody knows that song. You know, you know I'm, I, I'm not that complicated. Un- what's that yeah, complicated? Com- complicated? Complicated. It's complicated. I, 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 don't don't look at me like that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll play some for you later. You'll but love it. I look. For, I look. I look forward to that. So let's move on to the audio, which is. Uh, I'm this is the the sensational Alex Harvey, 1975 interviewed by Ira Robbins and Dave Schultz. I was slightly dreading this because I was absolutely no fan of Alex Harvey. No, nor was at, I at the no, time, no. and I had never heard of and him. And you'd, so. you'd never no. heard of him. But actually, this interview's a delight because he's a fantastic raconteur in this kind of deep Scots accent, but he's immensely funny. He gets the these two journalists and others roaring with laughter throughout this interview. 
And he doesn't really talk much about what he's doing. There's a brief bit at the beginning about his Vambo character, and there's a brief bit at the end about his guitarist, Sal Clements, and how he'd do the makeup and all this sort mm-hmm, of stuff. Mm-hmm. The bulk of the interview is I mean, he's, he's old. He was old when he sort of sort of yeah, made it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it turns out that his roots go right back to the very beginnings of British rock and roll. I mean, the late 50s through to the early 60s. And so he just regales us with stories about the Star Club in Hamburg and all of that sort of stuff and getting bands together and bands in London where you're basically a show band and you had to know all these tunes and so on and so forth. And he's just very funny and very engaging. So for a sort of sort of potted history of the the beginnings of British rock and roll, it's a really, really good interview to listen to. Shall it's, we hear a clip? We'll yeah, hear yeah, a clip. Well, yeah. uh, this... Uh, well, OK, which clip shall we do first? Uh, um, Can I just um, say yeah. that this is, this is almost the opposite of the way music journalism really usually works. Like, usually you do the piece because the band is really, really good yeah. and you really love the music, and then you interview them and you have this lovely conversation, but and when you transcribe it, it's just like a nice conversation. Yeah. It's not very interesting. It's Sh- Nina Cherry, case in point. Yeah, right. Lovely person, lovely, but nothing really amazing to say or you get people to my mind like Alex Harvey not really a great fan of the music but a great raconteur absolutely I think actually given we're talking about that let's kick off with his him talking about the Hamburg days later on through the interview he actually is almost demanding the, the existence of punk this is fall of 75 and in England there was not apparently not a glimmer of that um I saw the pistols at my art school in November of that year couldn't make head or tail of it but he's more or less saying it has to happen and he says you know th- th- right now there's some band rehearsing who are just going to destroy the whole thing and, and it's, it's, it's very interesting but this is him talking about Hamburg and uh, the old days at that time in Hamburg the people that owned these clubs had interests in, in little record companies and uh, they had a kind of jukebox market, which was making records for jukeboxes. And everybody did covers of of everything. And I recorded under the name of Boots Wellington and his rubber band. <laughs> Jimmy Doyle, Ian Other, um, Marv, Marv somebody. And the Playmates. <laughs> Marv Somebody. <laughs> I don't remember Marv Somebody in the Playmates. And it wasn't, no, it was a name, it wasn't somebody, I forget what the name was. And uh, we got sweat, 30 dollars, 30 marks a title. Mm-hmm. And you started work after you finished in the club, which was about 4 o'clock in the morning. And you got the money at the end and you got the pills before. So the guy would say, I have a tube of brilliant. I want you boys to be on your toes. It's <laughs> <laughs> at fucking half past three in the morning. It starts at seven o'clock. Right, uh... Jasper, it's about time I started talking about what's new in the library. I do think so. <laughs> I do think so. <laughs> oh, I've, I've, I've found some goodies. This week. What have you found for yeah. us, Mark? <laughs> it's like well, sort of show and tell kind of. Show and tell. Um, well, the first thing is it's an uncredited piece in Billboard, uh, which is basically reporting on the Tammy Show, the now legendary Tammy Show. From November '64, and it's it's a report in that it goes into the details of the company who are making it and who are they selling it to, but it's got a sort of a review aspect. It says the film opens at a wild pace with five minutes of fast-moving action, showing the performers en route to the Santa Monica Caliph Civic Auditorium. Their acts are in buses, taxis, trucks, motor scooters, and even on sidewalk surfing boards talking about surfboards, skater boys. Uh, Film credits appear over the action. The pace never slackens, and the crowds of teenagers in the audience really let up their din of adulatory cacophony. It adds oral impact and spurs performers to give frenetic performance. James Brown stands out with a fabulous performance that will enhance his position as an artist and open new vistas of opportunity. The press applauded at the end of his stint. 
Now, that's quite something, because in 1964, James Brown, having had the big hits in the mm. late 50s, please, 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 and so on, it wasn't, if you, it wasn't in doldrums. He was not a major star in 1964. He was, what, a year away from Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and the Invention of yep. Funk. And I'm sure being in that show was a major leg up to him. He notoriously scared the hell out of the Rolling Stones who were on the same bill, <laughs> who felt rather inadequate. Did he find them for playing <laughs> bum notes? <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, have you seen the Tammy show? No, I never. I've, I've seen cutting you yeah, know, things it, of it on it, YouTube, but what I re- there was one line that really leapt out of me. I read this piece and I just thought, this is so American, it's so of its time. Yes. I wrote it down. It said, so, so when they're trying to describe what was Tammy for, what, you know, not what it stood yes. for, which is a teenage something yeah. or other, but what, you know, what was the purpose of it, you know? And they said it was set up to understand teenagers, to recognise their needs, their wants, their attitudes and principles, to help them establish a position of respect in the community. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that'll never work. Have you met a teenager? Teenagers don't want to be respected. This is like a marketing man's idea of what a teenager should be for. Uh, It's fantastic. Uh, For once, I'm not featuring a Dawn James piece, who's my favourite 60s writer of all time. I'm not featuring a piece of yeah. hers, which is uh, a unique, I think, in yeah, so far. Unique. So, who have you made space for instead? Well, well uh, back to John, dear John Mendelssohn, who was a guest oh, this earlier. this piece is so funny. It's basically, he, before he became a notorious reviewer for Rolling Stone, he yeah. was a, wrote for his student paper, which happens to be the UC, UCLA Daily Bruin. Yeah. Luckily, there's a fantastic archive online, so I've been able to kind of rinse it. And, and he basically hates everything that we've now considered good. It, it, it is quite spectacular. Oh, was the CMC involved? I mean, in this, you know, he, he, he's, he's, he's rude about Buffalo Springfield, he's, Neil- rude, he's rude about Neil Young's debut album, and he's vicious about the MC5. And, and he talks glowingly about two albums, which are so obscure that, you know, you look up the artist and it's like a one-line entry in Wikipedia. <laughs> it, 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 it's special. I mean, we have to kind of really kind of bow to John Mendelssohn for his unerring ability to kind of... Uncanny. Uncanny ability to kind of misidentify what's hot. He says, at the risk of glorifying it by paying attention to it, I should like to share some thoughts with you about an unpleasant and malignant phenomenon called the MC5, which purports to be a rock and roll arm of the revolution. Annoying rumours have it that this five-man band, reportedly the most controversial and popular topic of conversation in New York since Kitty Genovese, will be appearing locally soon, and at the risk of being called a jam pawn in the white racist capitalist power structure, I'd like to hip you to the fact that the MC5 is a pretty awful shuck and unworthy of anyone's well-meaning curiosity. I mean, it's just... It's gold dust. I, I think I'd quit this, if someone wrote that. Yeah, I'd, no, I'd just I go know. home. The, the, this is why I love my it's job, so you know. <laughs> I love it, it, unpleasant, malignant phenomenon. Yeah. Like, but it's also marvellously overwritten, and, and, oh, that's, and John yeah. does that. He speaks like that, to be fair. And, and P.S. I need to add, I love the fact that, that he got Kitty Genovese into uh, a story about the MC5, because I grew up in Kew Gardens, which is where the Kitty Genovese murder happened. I'll just recap what it was about. So... The Kew Gardens, where we live, was was became famous after this woman was murdered, and apparently was shouting in the street saying, "Help! Help! Help! I'm being murdered!" And everybody just pulled their shades down and just thought, "Oh, it's nothing." She got murdered in in my neighborhood, and my neighborhood became famous for the neighborhood that doesn't care, doesn't give a shit, because of the Kitty Genovese wow. murder. So it was, a, and now they make these interactive shows where you could pretend you're living in Kew Gardens in a flat, and you know somebody's getting fake murdered outside. They do all these <laughs> weird reconstructions. It's like this big cult and my it's daughter amazing. is called Kitty and my sister and she goes you didn't name her after Kitty Genovese did you? <laughs> 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 it's fantastic fantastic <laughs> 74 San Francisco Chronicle Joel Sullivan interviewing Larry Graham and now this is what about a, two years after Larry had been pretty much thrust out of Sly on the Family Stone and it's it's nice, it, you know. Larry sort of uh, glosses over what really happened. If you read jo- uh, Joel Sullivan himself wrote the oral history of Sly and the Family Stone, of which we yeah. have the entirety on Rock's back pages, mm. and it turns out that he, in Larry's words in this interview, I finally decided if Sly's not going to let me play, play or sing, there's no reason to stay around. I never wanted to leave. 
Well, actually, he left because he came down to a hotel lobby and saw sly thugs waiting to beat him up, and he went out the back door and never returned to the band. <laughs> it's a bit darker than that, Larry, but you imagine 1974, he's still been sort of, you know, polite. And his first album just come out. I absolutely massive fan of Larry Graham, Graham oh. Central Station. I'm a massive fan of Sly and the Family Stone, yeah, so, yeah. so it's, it's all good. He's very eloquent. He is. Yeah, he's, he's, very he's an articulate guy. Articulate yeah. and intelligent about what he's playing and why he's doing it. And he's still what a he's great into. player. I mean, there's a lot of YouTube clips of him jamming with Prince and so on, you know, relatively recently, the last of 10 years. Great player, invented the slap bass, as we all know. Yeah. <laughs> New York Rock in 1980, Chris Needs, English writer Chris Needs, interviewing. Pill, Public Image Limited, John Lydon. And he's just, Lydon just comes up with stuff. He says, Did I not tell the world right from the start I didn't want to be a star? Have I not followed my beliefs? Where have I changed? I uh, the Shakespearean telling, <laughs> Did I not? Will I not? You know, it's yeah, that, yeah, I know. It's a sort of formal. I'm afraid I don't live in history books. We're trying to write the next chapter and not, not look back, back over the pages, which is actually fair enough. And at that point, Pill were a pretty revolutionary band. Metal Box just, was just coming yeah. out. Uh, and it's it's pretty good stuff. Jumping on to May 87, Melody Maker, uh, John Wilde's reviewing Arthur Russell at the Kitchen in New York. Yeah. And can I just say, Mark was delighted when he found this yeah, piece. Oh, yeah. it, was, it lit up his face. He was oh, so happy. Yeah. It, was so, it was the very, so nice first, very first piece I found of the day yesterday morning, wasn't it? I yes, think that's I right. Believe so. And he's writing specifically about Arthur Russell's marvellous world of echo that... that Arthur Russell's performing at this, I guess, fairly small place in in, in, in New York City. Uh, and World of Echoes, just a marvellous piece of music. And John Wilde says, Every second of this spacious, capacious noise sounds as though it is crafted with infinite care, as at the beginning or nearing the end of momentous ordeals. At times you almost forget there is one man in a cello up there, pondering no vast questions but erupting into an endless series of menacing peaks. Coarse and dissonant at one end, calm and beatific at the other. Russell's sideshow veers from abrasive scratchings to pastoral revelries, never less than cathartic. He also says that like, half the audience are ready to walk out at any moment. You know, <laughs> that, 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 that Russell is someone who really divides people. Do you know much about Arthur Russell? Is someone no, I don't, but what, I really like that piece because it's proper writing about proper music yeah. and you, could re- you can really see, like, he's not... There's not a lot going on on stage. Mm-hmm. There's just a guy, yeah. and, you know, and, and yet he makes this great landscape yeah. and you can really see it and feel yeah. it and hear um, it. I really recommend... You, do you have Spotify? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of Arthur Russell on Spotify and it's really worth investiga- okay. investigating. And World of Echo in particular, I think, is fantastic. He, he's an interesting guy because, on the one hand, he's doing basically art rock. Well, in rock, art music. Um, on the other hand, he was... He lived in the Paradise Garage and was really into his disco and did some really key disco tracks under various names. Dinosaur Owl, uh, he was a, an early member, person on Sleeping Bag Records and so on. So he has this extraordinary crossover between what Larry Levan is playing every night yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and what John Cage had done. If you, yeah. You, yeah, you know, he's somewhere sure. sort of in that sort of... Some, he created a continuum between the two, which is a pretty hard thing to do, but he managed it. Big fan, died of AIDS... Terribly. I mean, he had a, you know, there were bad ways to die, and his way was singly awful. Um, and those, what, when did he die? Oh, early 90s, 91, I guess. Yeah, they didn't have the, the chemical cocktail that they have no. now. And those days they just had AZT, and yeah. that was, it was a horrible drug, and yeah. he died anyway. Yeah. He was also impossible, he's a, a sort of mad perfectionist who could never really finish anything. Um, didn't they find reams or reels and reels yes. rather than reams, but of of stuff yes. that mm. in, he hadn't yeah. finished, hadn't put out. No one knew what to really do uh, with absolutely. or where. He, it he was, was also notorious fit. for ruining things by overdoing them. He'd go into the studio mm. to do a disco track, for example, and, and and he'd be in there with Larry Levan, kind of engine co-producing it. And Larry said, "That that's that's great." No, Arthur Russell had to keep reworking, reworking mm. until the whole thing would fall to pieces. Anyway, I mean, great man. And great writing. Really yeah, I think, uh, I, I think so. He, really, he puts you there in the room. Yeah, very, exactly. Really, very much. 1990 enemy, Paolo Hewitt, that famous socialist Paolo Hewitt, interviewing Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is always interesting. You know, he's always got a story to and tell. He's always there. He's been been around, done so many he's things. He's zealot. You know, yeah. uh, I, I mean, you know, he, from, he as a 15-year-old working with Ray Charles in Seattle, right through to, you know, so much stuff. I think he was to do with the cartoon I used to watch about the Harlem Globetrotters. 
quite, yeah, but, po- quite know, possibly. And also something to do with Cosby Show and Italian oh, and all this. Almost, things, yeah. almost certainly. Anyway, he's great. He's, he, this is a time when he was actually he had made a record with quite a few rappers on it. And, you know, he, yeah, he he had no yeah. problem with hip hop, unlike most of his generation. Of yeah, he was likening it to bebop. Well, but, yeah. I mean, he says, "Count Basie called me homeboy forty five years ago. Bebop slang was the hippest thing going, yeah. and it's been the young people's slang all this time." Yeah. Uh, which is great, and he says it's the African motor of the Black American church. That's what the whole thing is about. He's very funny about Michael Jackson. He was, I, I know for a fact that he's very polite about Michael Jackson here. He was actually exasperated that Michael Jackson was coming impossible to work with. Yeah. Um, he said, "I'm not saying Michael is your average guy next door. He wouldn't be Michael Jackson if he was." Then he says, "I wish Michael was a little wilder. I really do. I'd love to get him a little wilder and have some fun." Which is actually interesting because that implies that it's a. It's not much. Fun, fun doing yeah. it. Um, and the last thing he says, which I think is just great generally, is pop music, the desire and the quest, has always been to totally irritate the generation before them, really piss them off. You know, and that's specifically about hip-hop. And, and you know, most people of Quince's generation are incapable of having that sort of breadth to sort of understand what a young audience is like yeah. and so on. I mean, because I mean, Quincy Jones kind of came up in the sort of jazz tradition but then became this fantastic arranger yeah. composer you, you know he produced god knows how many yeah. hits throughout the years i mean he's an extraordinary identifier of talent i mean he was the guy who picked on rod temperton from hull in england a white boy from hull in england who had been in a kind of minor brit soul band heatwave who had a couple of really decent hits took him over to los angeles and he got him to write some of michael jackson's gracious tunes i mean that's that's something. Vision. And eclectic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, he took on New Order yeah. at some point. That's yeah. right. He signed yeah. them to Quest on yeah. an American yeah. deal. Yeah. And he talks in this interview about New Order with, with such respect, you know. And the thing is, if you've ever, if you've done music journalism, like the one thing that you really dread a band or an artist saying is like, you know, say like, you know, who your influence is like, standard bog, standard question, but you've got to ask mm-hmm. it. They say, oh, we really can't be categorised. And usually, you, you know, you just, you know, snort with derision with that because you say, <laughs> and I would always say, yeah, you can actually, I can name five bands that sound exactly like you. I can see why you were a popular interview. Five bands that sound exactly like you, but were better. <laughs> and did it 15 years ago yeah. as well. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Even when I was trying to be nice, I wasn't yeah. very nice. Uh, no, but, but, but actually, the thing is, that's why you'd struggle to be a music journalist now, because you'd be dealing with young artists who do sound exactly like stuff <laughs> you heard 25 years right, ago. Right, right. You know, I, I, I mean, it, it's I mean, hard that, to be... There's t- that Led Zepp tribute band that have recently become big, Greta Van Fleet, who sound exactly like they want to be Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Oh. And someone did call them out on it. There's just basically a, what their fans described as a hit piece oh, um, that someone wrote in Pitchfork right. magazine. Very, very, very funny. The point that I was trying to make was that when Quincy Jones says it in the context yeah. of this piece, that he doesn't want to be pigeonholed or categorised, that's a fair call. Yeah. Because he's Quincy Jones and yeah. he's done everything with everybody and he goes, he doesn't care what category he's in. If it, it moves him, it's got a groove, he's in it, he's there producing yeah. it. And that's why... Much respect to the man. And he's still mentoring young yep. musicians yeah. and finding talent. I, I mean, I suspect he's sadly he's not long for this world. I saw that you saw the documentary that was on, on him uh, a, few, a few weeks back, and his health is rapidly failing. Um, he actually he's on stage making a presentation. He collapses in this oh, documentary, oh. Um, which is very sad. But he's had an amazing life, you know. You know he's, he's had he's packed a, more in. Oh boy, it, you, you know. know. Uh, and whilst always retaining being dig- dignity is a terrible word to use, but with enormous amount of dignity and and, and, and amusement at everything that's going on Integrity around him. Integrity as well. He yeah, just, you know, goes for it. That's pretty much the last thing. There's mention of uh, Frank Broughton who's a great friend of mine. Yeah, I know Frank. Yeah, yeah. he's a really yeah. lovely guy. And writing for ID, interviewing Bob Bjork, who gets him hopelessly drunk, which is kind of fantastic. And I, I'm very... I like. I mean, do I like Bjork musically? Some of it very much, some of it less so. But I like her. Yeah, again, she kind of treads that fine line. I mean, I don't, it's a sense of really deeply wrong to compare her to Avril Lavigne. There is that sense of manic pixie Wasn't girl. Expected. Oh, there's definitely you know, there's, there's, there's a manic def- pixie There's girl. definitely a manic pixie girl. But, I mean, as a, as a musician, she, she really tries to do things. But she's very funny about her. Just, I wish I could be all polite and sit and drink two bottles of red wine and make it last for nine hours. But, uh-huh, it has to be fucking Blitzkrieg. And at which point they go out and... 
Of yeah. Yeah, it's, of it's, course, it's, it's, it's yeah. great. It's great. I, mean, I love Frank's writing. He, he he writes like a breeze. You know, he's one of these people that just it seems to let's pour out of his typewriter. It's a great shame he doesn't do more of it. He, he he's I think especially in the, the world of advertising these days. Though he's co-wrote a great book with Bill Brewster last night, a DJ saved my life, which is oh that's right, you know, yeah, just a great history of dance music. Uh, he's a terrific writer. I liked in that piece, kind of gets to the heart of Björk's sort of insane doing everything all the time, that she t- talks about working with the World Saxophone Quartet and an entire gamelan at the same time. <laughs> as if, like, it's just such but a... What's interesting about her is that she can pick all these bits and pieces and put them together. And, and it still her... sounds like Björk. Well, because of her, the sheer force of her personality and her force of her voice. She's you know, a powerful and interesting yeah, yeah. singer. I mean, I haven't heard much of what she's done recently, but but I'm, I'm not a fan, but I, I admire Bjork, I think it's fair to say. She's into that whole, she talks a lot about the, you know, uh, the people who came over to Iceland and, yeah. the, and those kind of... Uh, the Viking mentality. Yeah. I think I think that's Barbara Ellen did a really funny piece of going up. Maybe when it was still the sugar cubes, I can't remember. Of going to where they have those great hot hot yeah. springs in there, and I think Barbara wrote something like it was as if God had farted and was trying to waft the sheets. And on that that happy note, Jasper, anything you find? Well, the one thing I wanted to draw attention to was our first piece on Lil Peep. Which is, he was sadly deceased very young. He died a couple of years ago. He was one of the first casualties of the Xanax benzo epidemic that's currently sweeping the sort of SoundCloud rap scene. He's a SoundCloud rapper. And it's a pretty long interview conducted by Lisa Verico for the Sunday Times in 2017, which is only a couple of months before he died. Died at the end of November. Is this a genre they call something like Zan Rock or something like that? Yeah, it's it's sort of like, it's sort of new emo. I mean, he talked about not wanting to be, I mean, someone else describes him as emo and he's kind of like, well, I'll roll with that because it it characterises me. But it's it's a sort of mixture of rap and rock and Mm -hmm. elements of hip-hop. But it really, I mean, there are a lot of people taking Xanax recreationally and it's a really, really dangerous thing. And I just think it's an interesting piece partly because he then passed away, but also because he talks. I mean, he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's he, he was really big, but without a record deal. He had no no label, nothing. He was, was entirely social media. Social media, creation. huge on Instagram, huge on SoundCloud, sold out his tours across the world. I mean, he had tons of fans in Russia. Like he's described as like Ru- Justin Bieber goes to Russia is sort of what it felt like for him wow. to go and tour there. He you know, couldn't go to the shops without getting stopped kind mm-hmm. of thing. He wants to do his own thing very much. I mean, he sort of slightly grandiosely wants to be the next Kurt Cobain, which is quite funny. But, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, sort of <laughs> irony. He, you know, he didn't even make it to 27. But it's an interesting piece, I think, and it's the kind of thing that we don't have that much of right. on Rock Track pages. Oh, it's, well, it's, well, it's an interesting thing. Partly to because it's simply... Hasn't been written about much. No, exactly. I mean, we're very lucky that one of our writers, Lisa Berenko, got on board yeah. quite recently. Yeah. And it's quite, a, it's quite a, I would say, a sensitively conducted interview yeah. in a way. I mean, he says some pretty silly things because he's twenty-one. And yeah, he's, he's on Xanax. Yeah, on Xanax. Lethal conversation combination. But, but it, you get an interesting picture of of what he's doing and where he, where he kind of is at. Yeah, and it. It does make you think what what might he have... I'm not a huge... I've not listened to much of his music. I'm not a huge fan. But it does make you think what would he have gone on to do? Yeah. And because because he obviously is thinking about... He talks about thinking about images as important as the music when yeah. it comes to pop. And he talks about, you know, David Bowie and, and that, that whole image thing. So he's obviously thinking about things in at least a a way that... that he cares about what he's doing. Sure. So I think that's an interesting, an interesting. Well, that's, that's great. Is that what Mac Miller died of as well? He, uh, I think possibly. Yeah. Some... Mac, yeah. Something like that. He, he he overdosed on on something. I'm not sure what, but it's but all the benzodiazepines are the, kind of. The, yeah. It, it's it, sort of the new opioid thing, basically. It's all sort of like kids buying from the dark web sort of stuff. Well, or... yeah, but you can also it's, it's prescribed massively, yeah. so... Yeah. Less so now, it's much, much harder to get, you know, a, you know, in, in this... This is a woman who knows about these things. And it, but what intrigues me about the whole thing is that Xanax, people taking Xanax recreationally, because I took it for years and years just to feel normal. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how much of it you would have to take to feel... Any physical like, effect. Any yeah. thing, like fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just big point out that Jasper sourced this piece, and I'm really glad he did because I think that 
this is the writing which in five years' time will be rocks back pages and important because yep. it will be about sort of the, precisely these sorts of issues. Great stuff. Thank you. I think we'll draw this podcast to a close. We're going to go out with a, another clip um, from Alex Harvey where he basically is demanding punk, as I said earlier. But... Thank you so much, Michelle Kirsch, for coming yes, thank in. You thank, much, um, thank you very much. It's been it's been just great fun, and I'm sure we'll have you back at some stage in the future. Best of luck with your book. Thanks very much. And Out on March seventh. Yes, yep. that's right. Thank you. And uh, right, well, on that note, bye. 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 <laughs> Do you think there's any way out of this still? Yeah, kids will think, a group will come up, there'll be a group right now rehearsing, angry, and they'll break all the rules. And that, that's the golden thing about rock and roll, it was breaking the rules. And it, one, one thing, I'll tell you what, it's a strange kind of thing, uh, to read a record review, or a, or, a, or a review of an act, and a journalist says, yeah, this band was so such, but I thought the hi-hat sound was a bit... Uh... <laughs> I mean, I've been doing it for fucking years. I don't know about hi-hat, whether the hi-hat sounds right. Like, Grey Ball of the Fire, I don't even know if there's a hi-hat on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that matters, that, that bit. That was Alex Harvey in conversation with Ira Robbins, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Michelle Kirsch, whose book Clean comes out on the 7th of March. The hosts were Mark Pringle and Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs>